All right. Well, guys, welcome. Theological equipping class. Let me give you just a bunch of weird intro things before we get started. This semester, we are going to be studying how we are saved, okay? What we do each semester is we take a theological topic and we just run it into the ground so that everybody becomes experts on it. We've done this on the doctrine of God. We've done this on Scripture. We've done this on how to study the Bible. And this semester, we're going to be talking about what is called the application of redemption. So last semester, we saw specifically how Christ purchased our salvation through His life, death, resurrection, all the things that we talked about. This semester, we're going to talk about how is it applied to us? How do we get the good stuff? Christ got the good stuff. How do we get the good stuff? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this semester. So a few things. Uh, One, if you are new to theological equipping, please hear this. Please come back next week. We are starting off this semester super technical and super spicy and really difficult. If you're a nerd theologically, you will love it today. If not, you will hate it. So give us one more chance to win you back next week. Uh, We have a lesson next week that will be really good and encouraging, so please come back. We are uh, kind of uh, starting with a baptism by fire this morning with this this topic. Uh, Additionally, later on in this semester, we're going to have a full class just devoted to Q&A. So we'll still do Q&A at the end of every lesson, but if you have just an exceptionally good question or a long question or a deep question, we're going to have a whole class devoted to Q&A where uh, Jeff and I are going to sit up here kind of Oprah style, but instead of teaching heresy, we're going to answer your questions, okay? And so we'll do that. So if you have those questions, please email them to us. You can send it to info at theparkwaychurch.com or you can send it to any individual staff member and we will compile a list and we will do the Q&A for that one particular class uh, that way. So please keep that in mind. But today, before we get into what is limited atonement, we've got to back up and we've got to do uh, a little bit of introduction in theology, okay? Okay. On your paper and up here on the board, I have written what are called the doctrines of grace. Within the tradition that we stand in, and being Reformed Baptist, uh, we stand under a tradition that uh, would hold to the truthfulness and sufficiency of Scripture, and so we want to base all of our doctrine on Scripture. And uh, these are what are known as the doctrines of grace. This is also what is known as the five points of Calvinism. Now, let me just clarify what I mean on that. Labels can be helpful, but they can also be confusing, right? So there was one guy who joined our church, and he said, the thing I most like about Parkway is that it wasn't a Baptist church. And we're like, surprise, uh, what did he mean by that? Baptist to him meant no dancing, no drinking, altar calls, like whatever his grandma's church was like. That's what he was thinking. He was thinking legalistic. And we're saying, no, no, no. When we say Baptist, what we mean is we, believe, we baptize believers, not infants. We believe in regenerate church membership, and there's not an ecclesiological body that's over the local church. That's what I mean when I say Baptist. So labels are good, but they can be confusing. The same is true with the label Calvinism, okay, or the label being Reformed. Uh, there's a lot of confusion there. I mean a particular thing when I say that, but sometimes people get confused on that, so just be careful when using labels. Additionally, I don't love the term. I don't love calling this uh, tulip here the five points of Calvinism for a few reasons. One, none of these ideas originated with John Calvin. Every single one of these ideas were held by theologians before John Calvin. Additionally, he didn't use this little acronym to remember these things, tulip. Why? Because he didn't write in English. This doesn't come till about the 19th century. It's a fitting imagery. A lot of the Dutch Reformed tradition, right? Holland, there's tulips. It's a great idea, Uh, but but it it doesn't go back to uh, to Calvin. But I believe in these points, so I just want to give you a quick overview of what these mean. Some of these we've already taught on. Some of these we will be teaching on later this semester. Total depravity does not mean you're as bad as you could be. We could all be Hitler. 
It means that you can do no good in God's eyes, that you are so depraved, sin has so uh, corrupted our mind, our will, our emotions, our actions, that before God, it's just depravity. There is no good we can do before God before we become Christians, okay? The second one is unconditional election, that when God decides to save somebody, it's not based upon something in them or some future decision they would make. It's unconditional. God looks across the sea of damnable humanity and says, I'm going to put my grace on this person, okay? Limited atonement, we're going to come back to that. That's what our lesson is on today. Irresistible grace is not that people can't resist God's grace. People resist God's grace all the time. It's that His elect, it's that those he are, that, that He's going to save cannot ultimately resist His saving grace. When He comes to the Apostle Paul and says, you're going to do this, the Apostle Paul's going to do it, Okay. And then lastly, perseverance of the saints, which is kind of two sides of one coin. Perseverance of the saints, one, means that if you are truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. God doesn't put His kids back up for adoption. He doesn't re-impute your sin to you that's already been paid for. That makes no sense. The question is not, can you lose your salvation? The question is, can God lose your salvation? Okay? And the answer to that is no, God cannot fail. Also, it means that if you're truly a believer, you will persevere to the end. One of the marks of being regenerate is that you keep being regenerate, is that you keep having faith in Christ. As John would say, if they went out from us, they were not among us, because if they had been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. And so he gives this thing to say, true believers remain in the faith. Yes, you will struggle. Yes, the Christian walk is kind of two steps forward, one step back at times, but ultimately your faith will uh, stay in Christ because he's preserving your faith, not you. Okay? But today, we're going to get into the L, limited atonement. Okay? When it comes to Reformed theology, you will have people that call themselves four-point Calvinists, and what they mean is that they hold to all of these except the L. I've never met a four-point Calvinist that just really has a problem like with P, but holds all the rest. Okay? The one that is debated the most is right here, L, limited atonement. What is limited atonement? Why is it important? Let me give you a little background here. First of all, limited atonement goes by several different names. It's sometimes called particular redemption, sometimes called definite redemption, sometimes called definite atonement. The idea is the same, though the words change. And John Calvin in his institutes never actually addresses this directly. He never actually addresses limited atonement directly. He probably would have held to it Uh, but he doesn't address it directly. It's actually his successor at the Genevan Academy, a guy named Theodore Beza, uh, that really pushes Calvinism, in a sense, to the limits and uh, writes a lot about that. And then perhaps the greatest work on this topic is by the Puritan theologian John Owen in uh, Death of Death and the Death of Christ, which is in 1647. If you have questions about John Owen, you should talk to the Reverend Dr. Jeff Ashley. He did his thesis on John Owen. So if you uh, like John Owen or you have any questions about limited atonement, don't contact me, just contact Jeff. How about that? So there you go. Okay, that's the, that's the history. That's uh, some of the stuff to start us out. Let me explain what this is and is not, because this is a very controversial doctrine. This is something that many Christians do not hold. Uh, I hold it. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I hope that you are too, but you don't have to be. You can still be loved. You can still be saved. You can still be a member at Parkway and not hold this. Uh, you'll just be wrong. So, <laughs> definition. Let me explain uh, what, what limited atonement is and is not, okay? Look at this definition. I've, I've, I've crafted this carefully. God intended the death of Christ to only atone for the sins of the elect and not for people who would ultimately reject Christ. Ooh, that's what we're going over today. For whom did Christ die? Did Christ die for everyone or did he die just for the people that would believe, the elect? Did he die for all people, including those who are lost? Did he waste shed blood? Maybe that's a way to ask it. Or did he die with the intent of expressly saving those that he came to save, that the Father would give him? And so that's what we're going over 
with uh, over today, okay? Now, let me say this. Before I read some more definitions and stuff, let me tell you why this is important. This is going to seem like a real pedantic uh, kind of esoteric topic in theology. Let me explain why this is really important, okay? Look at me. This is the one takeaway, the so what I'm going to give you up front. Ready? Here's what it is. What this means for you is that Christ died for you intentionally. This is the takeaway from this. How do you know that God loves you? Because Christ didn't just die randomly for humanity hoping that someone would believe. He intentionally died for you. Think about that. That means that though you would have never chosen Christ, God just decided to set his love on you. That's the practical application of limited atonement. That when you go home and you say, God, why do you love me? And he just says, there was nothing in you. I just decided to set my love on you. And that Christ died for you intentionally. That's powerful, okay? That's powerful. I've heard pastors say this, that when Christ was on the cross, he was thinking of you specifically, okay? Now, part of that I don't like because it sounds kind of squishy and it kind of makes you the point instead of the glory of God. But part of that is absolutely right, that the Father sends the Son to die for those whom he's going to save, not just random humanity hoping that somebody believes as God has his divine fingers crossed, okay? That's really the take-home of limited atonement. Let me give you some more definitions of this. John Frame says, Christ died only for the elect, only for those who in God's plan will ultimately be saved. Burkhoff says, Christ died for the purpose of actually and certainly saving the elect and the elect only. He died for the purpose of saving only those to whom he actually applies the benefits of his redemptive work. And then Wayne Grudem summarizes the question this way, when Christ died on the cross, did he pay for the sins of the entire human race or only for the sins of those whom he knew would ultimately be saved? Let me give you an example of these two views, okay? There's limited atonement and then there's unlimited atonement. There's particular redemption, and then there's general or universal redemption, okay? There's actually even within the Baptist world, there's a group of Baptists called the general Baptist, and there's a group of Baptists called the particular Baptist, okay? That refers to this debate. The particular Baptists are not those that are just really particular. They're like, stand up straight, wear your tie. That's not what it means. It means they believe in particular redemption, and general Baptists believe in general redemption, okay? So here's a a good example. Let me give you an example of what, what I'm trying to say. Think about the difference between winning the lottery and receiving an inheritance, okay? When you win the lottery, there's a bunch of money that's out there, but you don't know who's going to win. It's for somebody, assuming that they get the correct numbers, but there's the potential chance that maybe nobody gets the correct number, right? And the lotto just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And whoever wins, it's impersonal, right? somebody's going to win this money. We don't really know who. There's no relationship there. If you're lucky enough to get the right numbers, then you receive that money. Now, think about the difference between that and an inheritance. And an inheritance, it's set aside specifically for you, right? So, let's say you have a a rich, you know, granddad or whatever it is, and he's a millionaire or whatever. So, you still get this money like you would with the lotto. The difference is, is it is assigned to you, and it will certainly go to you, and it goes to you because your granddad loves you. That's the difference between limited atonement and unlimited atonement. In limited atonement, God is intentionally having the death of Christ be for those whom he's going to save. It's like an inheritance, not like the lotto, that it, it, somebody might get it. We don't really know. It's impersonal. And so, again, the, the take-home, the good spiritual thing from this is not just a bunch of academic head knowledge. It's that Christ died intentionally for you, not just randomly for humanity hoping that you would believe, okay? So, let me give some clarifications, I want to give a bunch of clarifications because people are really confused on what limited atonement is. Okay, the first is this. The word limited has to do with who will be saved, not the power of Christ's atonement, okay? So when we say limited atonement, we in no way mean that Christ's death is weak or that it couldn't have atoned for everyone's sins if God wanted it to or that it's not really powerful. 
What we mean is not that it's limited in power. We mean that it's limited in scope, okay? It's not limited in power. It's limited in scope. So here was the joke that I said, I told Jeff I was going to say during this class, okay? If I had most of you go out into the hallway and I only taught this entire limited atonement lesson to just a few of you, that's limited atonement, okay? You're getting the full content of my lesson. It's a great lesson already. I think it's just a great lesson. You're getting the full amount, but not everybody's getting it, okay? So when we talk about limited atonement, we are in no way saying Christ's death is weak or couldn't, isn't powerful enough or something like that. It's of infinite power, okay? What we're saying, though, is in God's intentionality that He is using it to apply it to the elect. So it's not limited in power, it's limited in scope. Does that make sense? Okay. Are we having fun? Okay. There ain't no party like a limited atonement party because a limited atonement party doesn't include everyone, okay? (laughs) Next, Christ's death was, and here's a popular phrase, sufficient for all, efficient for some, okay? That's just to hit the same thing over again. It's not limited in its power. It's not limited in anything like that. It's just limited in scope. It's, it's who it's for, okay? Not its power. Next, limited atonement is logically linked to the idea of election, okay? Notice that all these things have a tendency to go together. I think you have to be a five-point Calvinist if you're going to be reformed because I think logically when you hold to any one of these, maybe with the exception of perseverance of the saints, it logically makes you have to hold to the other ones, okay? So if God has decided who he's going to save, then that also means that he's intending to save them with the death of Christ. So logically, this is linked to the idea of election, To say it another way, the issue is, and here's my little quote here, did Jesus actually accomplish atonement on the cross, or did He just make atonement potentially available? To say it another way, does the death of Christ make us savable, or does it make us saved? Here's what Spurgeon says on this. Christ so died that He infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. In God's mind, when Christ is dying on the cross, God knows for certain who He's going to save. You can't get away from that if you believe in an all-knowing God, okay? You can't get away from that. Now, let me uh, erase some of this. Still true, even though I erase it? and say this. This is really important. The death of Christ… Okay, so when we talk about limited atonement, not only is it limited in intention, okay, it's limited in uh, who it's applied to. Now, here's what I mean by that. Let me write a few other words on the board. What a lot of people think is that when Christ died, he just kind of laid salvation up on a shelf for whoever would believe. Nothing's really accomplished. It's up on the shelf. And then when somebody actually believes in it, it's kind of on layaway. When somebody actually believes in it, then they get the benefits of his death, okay? Here's the problem with that. Christ's saving work on the cross includes not just your sins being forgiven, listen, but the faith you need to be saved and your regeneration, okay? Our faith comes from Christ's death, and our regeneration through the Holy Spirit comes by the power of Christ's death. And so what you need to realize is that Christ is not just making forgiveness of sins potentially available. Everything we need for salvation, He's purchasing on the cross. And so it makes no sense to say that Christ died to give saving faith to people who would never believe. 
Or Christ died to give regeneration to those who would never believe or something like that. That doesn't make sense. So when we talk about limited atonement, we're not just talking about intention, that this is what God wanted to do. We're saying that Christ accomplished the purpose of the Father. Christ's death accomplished what He wanted it to accomplish, which is to save the elect, including our faith, our regeneration, every part of our salvation, okay? Now, here's another clarification. Though atonement was made for us 2,000 years ago, we are not actually reconciled to God until people repent and believe, okay? So if you're hearing me say, you've always been saved, that is not what I'm saying. The Bible is abundantly clear that you are an enemy of God until you repent, okay? So you are not reconciled to God until you actually repent. What we're saying, though, is when Christ died on the cross, it's like the inheritance thing. You don't get the money until your granddad actually dies. But what we are saying is the money is already there and it is already there for you specifically and not for somebody else. Okay? That's what we're saying. Now, let's do a little logic. We're going to get into some logical things, and then we're going to get into some biblical things. Okay? Before I get into that, I have to blow your mind with something. Are you ready to have your mind blown? Are you ready? Okay. Which one of the following sentences is more true? You ready? Two plus two equals four, or Jesus is Lord? <laughs> is more true? Now, let me, let me say that. Which one's more important? Jesus is Lord, right? Because that's what you need to be saved. The Bible does not require that you believe that two plus two is four, although your view of the Trinity will get weird if you get rid of numbers, okay? The Bible requires that you know Christ. But which one of those are, are more true? Now, listen, this is powerful and important. They're equally true. Truths are equally true, okay? Our mind can err. The Bible can't err. Our mind can know facts that we don't need to know, whereas the Bible has the facts we need to know. But when it comes to truth, you have to realize all truths are equally true. My name is Zach, and Jesus' name is Jesus are equally true. I'm not as important as Jesus. Let me just lay that on the table, okay? But those facts are equally true. So here's what you need to know. A logical truth is just as true as a biblical truth, assuming you did the logic right. Where people get confused is they say, okay, yeah, all truths are equally true, so this atheism must be true because of this, and then they're doing the logic incorrectly, okay? Assuming that your logic is correct, it's equally true, but we have a tendency as humans to err, which is why we put our truth more in the Bible than we do in philosophy, though philosophy can still be helpful. But with that in mind, let's talk about some logical proofs for limited atonement. First argument, premise one, if Jesus atoned for everyone's sins, then everyone would be saved. If everyone's sins have actually been atoned for, then nobody goes to hell, okay? But premise two, the Bible is clear that everyone is not saved, that the road is wide that leads to destruction, that there are people that don't believe in Christ. Therefore, logically, you have to say Christ's death actually atoned only for those who would believe in Him and not for everybody else, okay? Some more logic for you. Put this in your, uh, as I had one professor say at a conservative seminary, put this in your theological pipe and smoke it. Premise one. The Bible teaches some people will not be saved. Premise two, God knows who these people are. Then conclusion, if God knows they will not be saved, then how could God have intended to save them by Christ's death? When we're talking about limited atonement, we're also talking about God's intent to save people. If He knows they're never going to believe, how could God be intending to save them? That doesn't make any sense. Then God would be saying, I assume this is going to happen, though I know it's not going to happen. That doesn't make any sense. The next one, and I think this one is really good, this comes from John Owen, again, see also Jeff Ashley, it comes from John Owen. He says, here are your only, I've actually elaborated on his argument, I think, to make it a little clearer, but here are your only logical options of who can be saved. Let's look at these four options. One, you can say that Christ died for the all sins of all men. If everyone's sins have already, are already been atoned for, for all men, then guess what? 
everyone is saved. That's universalism. We don't hold that. That's not biblical. So option number one doesn't work. Option number two is this. Perhaps Christ died for some sins of all men. Well, then everybody's damned. If only half your sins are atoned for, let's say everyone in the world has three of their sins atoned for, but none of the rest, then everybody's condemned. So if just some of your sins are atoned for, that doesn't, you need, it's an all or nothing deal. You're either born again or you're not. You're either forgiven or you're not. It's not like I'm half forgiven, right? It's not the Monty Python. I'm not, I'm half alive, you know, I'm half dead or whatever, okay? For fuller quote, see Carl Brower. Number three, <laughs> the next view is that perhaps Christ died for all sins of some men. That's the view of limited atonement that if you are someone who believes in Christ, i.e. the elect, how do I know I'm elect? Because you believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, then all of your sins have been atoned for. And then the last possible logical option is that Christ atoned for some sins of some men, which also would lead to everyone being damned, right? Some people have some of their sins atoned for, other people have none of their sins atoned for, and those people whose sins have been atoned for, only half of them are. Well, then everybody's condemned. So logically, even if we didn't have Scripture on this, which we do have Scripture, I'm going to show you that in a second, you would have to hold, I think, the view again of limited atonement, that Christ died for all of the sins of some men, okay? And then lastly, as we think through uh, how God knows all things, He knows all things instantly. He doesn't have to recall things. When the Bible says God remembers His covenant, He's not like, where, what, where, what was it? What did I say to Moses? That's not what's going on. That's speaking in a way we can understand because we're humans, though God is not. Does God ever plan something that could potentially happen, or does He plan things that actually happen? He knows all possibles. He could have done things differently, but when He's actually setting out His divine plan, does He just plan things that could potentially happen, or does He plan things that actually happen? He plans things that actually happen, okay? So let me give you a great quote from the, the greatest theologian to ever come out of the Americas, Jonathan Edwards. He says this. By the way, he's going to say universal redemption, that's the opposite of limited atonement, okay? So there's limited atonement, and then there's unlimited atonement. There's particular redemption, and there's universal redemption, okay? Let's look at this quote. This is a good quote. Universal redemption must be denied in the very sense of Calvinists themselves, whether predestination is acknowledged or no, if we acknowledge that Christ knows all things. For if Christ certainly knows all things to come, He certainly knew when He died that there were such and such men that would never be the better for His death. And therefore, it was impossible that He should die with an intent to make them, the particular persons, happy. For it is a downright contradiction to say that he died with an intent to make them happy, when at the same time he knew they would not be happy, predestination or no predestination. It is all one for that. This is all that Calvinists mean when they say that Christ did not die for all, that he did not die intending and designing that such particular persons should be the better for it. And that is evident to a demonstration. Now, Arminians, non-Calvinists, those who don't hold this position, when they say that Christ died for all cannot mean with any sense that He died for all anywise other than to give all an opportunity to be saved, and that Calvinists themselves never denied. He did die for all in that sense, tis past all contradiction, okay? So let me say this. <clears throat> this is uh, unrelated to the quote, but I, I just thought of this I need to mention. There is a sense in which Christ's death still benefits non-believers, just not savingly. By saving believers, it makes the world a better place, okay? How many uh, atheist hospitals have you seen? You ever been driving by and it says something like uh, atheist medical center? No? What does it say? Presbyterian, Texas Health Presbyterian, or Methodist, or something like that. How many atheist, uh, you know, charity organizations that adopt a ton of kids? You realize that there is a benefit by having believers for everyone. Christ's death, because it crushes Satan, is a blessing to everybody, what we're talking about, though, are the saving benefits. The saving benefits of that are only for the elect. Now, you're saying, Zach, that's enough of this book learning. That's enough of this logic. What does the Bible say? 
here are some passages that I think teach limited atonement. Okay, I've underlined the parts that I think are important. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Who's that? Okay, the good shepherd lays down his life for everyone, for the goats, for the wolves. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Interesting, Christ dies for his sheep. Matthew 1, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save who from their sins? His people, okay? Not everybody, not those that are not his people, but his people. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, right? In context, Jesus is calling the disciples his friends, okay? He's saying, I'm laying down my life for you intentionally, those that I know, not random people that will never love me. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, that's important, who's the church, believers, look, which he, that's Christ, obtained with his own blood. Notice that Christ's blood obtains salvation for the church, for those that are believers, for Christians. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved who? The church. Notice it doesn't say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved Esau. Loves the church and gave himself up for her. Notice that this text also says that Christ gave himself up specifically for his people, for the church. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for whom? For whom right now is Christ interceding before the Father? For us, for believers, for Christians, for the church. Limited in scope. John 17, 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Notice this distinction here. As he's praying, he's saying, I'm not praying for everybody. I'm praying for the elect. I'm praying for the church. I'm praying for Christians. I'm praying for those who would believe. I'm praying for those who you've given me and specifically not those you've not given me, okay? Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we, that we as believers, are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Notice that the death of God's Son reconciles we. It reconciles the believers, uh, or who's talked about in this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death, where our sin is imputed to Him and our, we receive His righteousness, is for believers in this text, it specifically says. That's who the we is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us, he's talking to believers, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Again, i.e. believers. Jesus has not become a curse for lost people. They're still under God's curse. If he has become a curse for lost people, they're saved and everyone's saved. And what are we doing? What are we, let's just go do whatever we want. Let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die if everybody's just already saved. No, it's not that Christ has become a curse for those that remain under God's curse. Christ has become a curse taking it away from believers all right, taking away from those who would believe, okay? Now, one of the things we say that we do here at Parkway is we never give you less than you need to know, but we will often give you more than you need to know. So what we're going to do now is I want to show you the other position. I want to show you the other side, what's called the Arminian position, unlimited atonement or universal atonement, and I want to explain kind of what's going on here. Do you remember how up on the board in my uh, terrorist handwriting I had uh, written the five points of Calvinism? That is not something that Reformed people got together one day and just said, Let's make five points, and let's make it rhyme with a flower. Those five points originally come from the opposition. They come from a guy. There's a guy named Jacob Arminius, and uh, his followers resisted uh, certain things that we believe the Bible teaches, certain, certain facets of the Reformed faith. And, uh, and so they had five points, 
uh, in what they called the remonstrance. The word remonstrance means uh, a rebellion or a pushing against or a dissent, okay? And so those who believe in the remonstrance are called remonstrance with a T-S at the end instead of a C-E, okay? And so uh, let me give you the Arminian position. So this is the other position. This is the one that I don't hold, uh, but here's the position. That agreeably thereto, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross redemption and the forgiveness of sins, yet that no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer according to the word of the Gospel of John 3.16 and in the first epistle of John 2.2, okay? This is Article 2 written in 1610 uh, of the uh, five articles of remonstrance, okay? So what they're saying is, Jesus didn't die intentionally just to save the elect, that he potentially died for all, okay? Potentially, well, I don't want to say it that way. There's a sense in which he potentially died for anyone who would believe. What they would say is that uh, there is a sense in which he didn't accomplish salvation on the cross. He just made us savable. He didn't save us. There's just potential salvation, okay? Now, let me give you some notes on the Arminian position. This is important. Christ died for all people, but all people are not saved. Therefore, his death either merely took away original sin so people could freely choose God or merely made salvation possible for those who would freely choose him. When you're talking about limited atonement, here are the questions you're asking. Did Jesus die for humanity generally or did he die for me specifically? I would say he died for you specifically. You're also asking, did his death on the cross actually do something or did it just make something hypothetical? I say it actually did something. The Arminian view is in a sense it makes something hypothetical, okay? For uh, the Arminian, limited atonement is not sufficient for all, efficient for some, which is what I would hold, okay? Unlimited atonement, the Arminian view, is efficient for all, sufficient for some, okay? So it reverses those two. It's efficient for all, but only sufficient for some, okay? The question is not, is atonement limited in some sense, okay? Everyone agrees that's orthodox that everybody's not going to be saved. So the question is not, is atonement limited? The question is, who does the limiting? For the Calvinist, it's God. For the Arminian, it's man. So atonement's limited, li- limited regardless, all right, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, whether you're on either side that you're on in this debate. The question is, who does the limiting? Does God do the limiting or does man do the limiting? Also with Calvinism, you have to ask the question of who's ultimately responsible for your decision to be saved. With the Calvinist, ultimately, logically, you have to say it's God. With the Arminian, ultimately, logically, you have to say that it is the decision of man. And then lastly, and this one is just a devastating critique, I think, of the Arminian position. In the Arminian view, there is the possibility that Jesus could have died and accomplished salvation for no one. So assume this for a second, that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, but let's assume that nobody ever freely decided to follow God and believe. Then has Jesus done anything on the cross? No, he's accomplished nothing. That's a dangerous, dangerous view, but that's the view that you're forced into, I think, logically from the uh, non-reformed position, okay? But they have their passages. What do we do with this? By the way, should we ever play biblical tennis or biblical ping pong where somebody says, here's a verse, patap, and then you're like, oh yeah, but here's a verse, patap, and well, here's a verse as if God is divided and as God is schizophrenic and he's like fighting himself. No, whatever view you hold, you have to make it make sense with all the biblical passages. Do you understand that? You can't say, well, I emphasize these verses, but my buddy emphasizes these verses. We don't know who's right. One of you is wrong, or both of you are wrong, but you're not both right. And so you need a system that will be able to interpret all of these, okay? So what the Arminian will do is they will throw back the following passages, and they'll say, Zach, look, there's all these things that say that Jesus died for not just the elect, that he died for the world. Let's look at some of these passages. 
John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of who? Or of whom? The world. The world. Uh Uh-oh. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Does that mean that God loves every single person? What about Esau? Does God love Esau? Okay, we'll just keep going. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. They'll say, see, look, He died for the world. 1 John 2, 2, He is the propitiation, that's a sacrifice that takes away God's wrath, for our sins and not for ours only but also the sins of the whole world. That's a strong one. That's a good one. What do we do with that? 1 Timothy 2, 6, talking about Christ who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Uh Uh-oh. I'm getting nervous. Get nervous. Maybe we should all become Arminian. 1 Timothy 4.10. That's never the answer, by the way. 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This next one's really good. 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. False prophets that are lost it says that they've been purchased. They've been bought by Christ's blood, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Hebrews 2.9, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. <gasps> Let's pray. I'm just kidding. Um, what do we do with these? What do we do with these positions? We saw on the one hand, there are all these passages that say that Jesus died for His sheep, for the church, not for the world, but for those who would believe. And then in these passages, you have all these things that seem to say that Jesus died not just for believers, but for the whole world, for people who would deny Him, for people who are evil, etc. The response to that is this. Ready? This is really important. Most theological confusions are simply linguistic confusions, okay? Here's the issue you need to realize. Let's just talk real quickly. I mentioned this in my sermon last week. A lot of the confusion here comes because people don't understand how language works, okay? Words don't just have one meaning, okay? Words don't just have one meaning. The example I gave last week is the word run. You can go for a run, your nose can run, you can run for office. It's the same word, but it means a bunch of different things, okay? Let me ask you this question and show you how confusing language can be. What are the chances that somebody wins the lottery? Somebody, give me your guess. One in a million? I would say that the chance that someone wins the lottery is 100%. Someone's going to win the lottery, Do you see how I just used the same word, someone, and it can be taken to mean one particular person, that chance is one in a million, like Vishal was mentioning, or I can mean it to say anyone could receive, right? Anyone could do that, okay? Your chance, if you're flying on a plane, or what I call an air death trap, if you're flying on a plane, your chance of crashing or not crashing of those two options is 50%, but that doesn't mean your chance of crashing is 50%, right? Every, time, every other time someone gets on a plane, it doesn't crash, okay? So language can be confusing when we use words like all, when we use words like some, when we use words like someone, certain one, anyone. Language is confusing, so you have to ask, what does it mean? So I've given some clarifications for these here, okay? Let's look at the first one together and the responses to the Armenian position. Sometimes when the Bible uses phrases like world or all men, it doesn't mean literally every single person. It often means humanity or sinners in general. Let me give you some examples. 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Does that mean that God has saved everyone? It says He reconciled the world to Himself. 
No, what it means is he's reconciling sinners to himself. Jesus is the Savior for humanity. Or 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Does that mean everyone is saved? If you want to say all means every single, you have to say, yes, everyone's saved. But that's not the point, especially of those who believe. The point there is to say, who is the Savior of all people means of humanity. Who can humanity go to to be saved? Only Christ. Christ is the Savior for all people. For anybody who wants to be saved, that's the only Savior. It's not Allah. It's not Ganesh. It's not, uh, you know, trying to reach a transcendental state in, in Buddhism or whatever. Jesus is the Savior, okay? Jesus was sent for the world in the sense that He was sent for sinners, for humanity, okay? So, all doesn't mean every single. The context will determine what all means. Next, number two. Sometimes when the Bible uses phrases like world or all, again, it doesn't mean every single person. It often means that the gospel is offered to all is, or is available for all who want to be saved, okay? It means of all the ways that humans, i.e. the world, could be saved, there's only one option for salvation, Christ. Let me give you an example. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, or for, yeah, for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, okay? What that means is that He is offered to everyone. That doesn't mean that they actually believe. Robert Yarbrough, New Testament scholar, says about uh, this passage this. He says, Jesus' sacrifice is offered and made available to everyone in the whole world, not just to John and his current readers. That's the idea. It's not that he's wasted shed blood, that there's all this atonement made that just kind of goes into the ground for people that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't believe in it. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Does that mean everybody is saved? No. That means that it's offered to all. It's available to those who believe. It's available to those who want to be saved, okay? So let me, let me pause real quick before I get to the third point and just say this, ready? It is fine in your preaching and teaching and talking to people to say, Christ died for your sins. That's okay to say, okay? You're not going to them and saying, I hereby know you're elect. That's not what you're saying. You're going to them and saying, the, way, the thing the Bible says, I don't know who's elect and who's not, so, assuming that you want to believe, then Christ did die for your sins. But I don't have to clarify all that. I can say, you need to repent and believe because Christ died for your sins, okay? Number three, sometimes when the Bible uses the word everyone, it doesn't mean every single person. It means groups of people. It could mean all saved people or all people who could potentially believe or all people in Christ or all types of people, okay? I'll give you an example. Romans 5, 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Are all people saved in that passage? No. It's restricted to all those in Christ. Everybody in Adam receives death. That's everybody. Everybody in Christ, who's not everybody in Adam, it's just people that have repented and put their faith in Christ, that is who is reconciled to God. Okay, so notice there that though the word everyone, all men is used there, it doesn't mean all people, literally every single person, it means all people in Christ. Or Hebrews 2.9, but we see him for who, uh, I'm sorry, let me read this again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That means for everyone who could potentially believe. It's not that their sins have actually been atoned for. The idea is for it's offered to all. Okay? So again, all or everyone sometimes means groups of people. Here's a really good example. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Does that mean all people literally? No. Look what it goes on to say. For kings and for all who are in high positions. So sometimes it means all types of people. Okay? All types of people. So what I'm trying to say in all three of these points, they're really just making the same point, which is this. The word all doesn't always mean every single the word all is limited by the context, okay? If someone says, Zach, who's coming to your party tonight? And I say, 
everyone's coming. Does that mean I will have 7 billion people at my party? No, it means a bunch of people that I invited are coming. That's how language works, okay? So don't just assume that all means every single, because if you do that, now you're stuck with a bunch of passages that you have to say now every single person is saved, and that's not true. So all I'm trying to say is the word all changes its meaning depending on the context. And each of the passages used by the Arminian to try to deny what I'm supporting today, I think they're misinterpreting because they're making all mean every single, and I don't think it means every single. I think the context determines sometimes it's all types of people, sometimes it's offered to all, sometimes it's all just in the sense that it's generally for humanity, it's for those who could potentially believe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? And then lastly, this one's really important. Sometimes the Bible speaks from our limited human perspective and doesn't give us God's secret insight into a person's life. Some text should be understood from our vantage point, what seems to be true about a person, and not uh, from God's eternal perspective, what is actually true about the person. Okay, look at 2 Peter uh, 2.1 again. But false prophets will also arise among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." I don't think what that text is saying is that Jesus actually atoned for their sins, but they didn't believe and Jesus wasted his blood. I think what it's talking about is from our perspective. We don't know whether or not these people are saved. So from our perspective, it looks like they were Christians. It looks like they followed Christ, but actually they didn't. The Bible does that a lot. Sometimes it's speaking, it's always speaking from God's perspective and that it's his word, but sometimes the specific text is talking about the way God would see it. Other times it's talking about the way we would see it. Okay? So when Jesus says, the man comes up to him and says, good teacher, and he says, why do you call me good? He's not saying from God's perspective, I'm not actually good. He is good. He's God. Okay? What he's saying is from this guy's perspective, who's trying to butter him up, he's trying to say, whoa, I don't think you understand goodness. Right? Or we talked about this in the sermon last week. What some people will say is that uh, the apostle Paul in Romans 7 has to be a believer because he says that he loves God's law. Okay? What I was supporting last week was to say that doesn't mean that he's actually saying when he was lost, he literally loved God's law. He's saying from his perspective, he loved God's law, okay? So this text is not saying that they were actually purchased. It's saying from our vantage point, they seemed to be sheep, but God knew that they were actually wolves, okay? By the way, that kind of language is used in Deuteronomy for unfaithful Jews as well, denying the master who bought them, okay? Final clarifications before Jeff comes up to do Q&A wherever he went. Number one. Jesus' death is not lacking or limited in power. Jesus' death is not lacking or limited in power, okay? Neither side of this debate says that Jesus' death was not awesome, okay? The question is, is it limited in scope? Number two, Jesus actually atoned for the sins of those who would believe and not for every single person. Number three, this one's important. Anyone who wants to come to Jesus will never be rejected by him. John 6, 37 says this, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, okay? So if you're thinking this, if you're thinking, I want to be saved, but maybe Jesus didn't atone for my sins. The fact that you're wanting to be saved shows that you're one of the people whose sins he's atoned for, which is why you want to be saved. So there's never the case of someone going before Jesus and him saying, now get out of here, okay? If you're going to Jesus, you're showing retrospectively that uh, your sins have been uh, paid for by him, okay? So this shouldn't ever, if anything, this should encourage your evangelism. It shouldn't hinder it. You should be able to go up to somebody and say, if you decide to believe in Christ, your sins actually are fully atoned for and you can walk in relationship with God and not walk around in guilt. That's what it should do, okay? Number four, most of the confusion on this issue comes from assuming that words, especially the words all and world, have only one static meaning and don't change depending on the context. 
Number five, this should not be an issue that overly divides Christians, okay? Uh, You are not going to go to hell if you don't hold to limited atonement. This is not like the Trinity or the deity of Christ or something like that, okay? Uh, So to quote one pastor, we're very diverse here at Parkway. We have both four and five-point Calvinists, okay? And then number six, logical conclusions, assuming we didn't misuse logic, is just as true as biblical conclusions, okay? What is theology? Theology is taking everything the Bible says and trying to summarize it, okay? It's a summary of the whole Bible, okay? Philosophy plus Bible equals theology. That's what we're doing. We're taking what the whole Bible says and we're putting it together coherently. With that in mind, Jeffrey. Jeff, John Owen, Ashley is going to come up with us and he's going to help us answer some questions for our little Q&A on limited atonement.